Increasingly, finance dominates the way we live our lives. Despite seeing, in recent years, growth in economies globally, more and more people are struggling to make ends meet. Inequality gaps continue to grow and the bulk of income is concentrated among a small group. The term financialization has become the go-to term for scholars grappling with the growth and changing face of finance and its consequences. Some explain it as the domination of financial markets and institutions over other sectors of the economy. It has been described by some as wonky. However it is understood, it is a term that is increasingly used across academic disciplines, presenting varying viewpoints and approaches, and as a useful analytical lens on politics, technology, culture, society and the economy. In this episode of Between the Lines, Dinah Rajak speaks with Phil Mader and Natasha van der Zwan about their vital new book, The Routledge International Handbook of Financialization. Hi there, hello, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to, to interrogate, to have this wonderful opportunity to speak to Philip Maida and Natasha van der Swan on their latest project, this fantastic book, really exciting uh, contribution to so many fields and, and knowledge around financialization. And so we're going to dig deep into this and 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 mine it today to pull out some of it it's really uh uh i think most penetrating insights and why they're so important for for this moment so welcome and and hello thank you dinah thank you for having us no absolutely a pleasure and i'm gonna um kick off straight away by completely ignoring all of my mother's advice when i was young to not judge a book by its cover i always judge a book by its cover and i think this one uh, when i was sent it was a particularly enigmatic one it was uh, a moment way back at the start of of this pandemic which has shaped everything and it was really uh, um i guess a a, a, a lovely breath of fresh air to a book through the um, post as opposed to all the other deliveries that are now shape our life anyway and uh, I was really struck by the cover um, and it's uh, made me think what's going on it looks like figures printing banknotes um, it seems also rather old school and to historical for this kind of modern high world whizzing round of, of finance. And so I thought this might already be a clue to the way in which the book goes so deep and so wide. And I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll say something for a minute about the topic of the book and then uh, invite Natasha to describe the cover a little bit to the readers and explain the story behind it. I mean, what is financialization? It's this really nerdy, wonky sounding term. It's been described as a wonky term. And, but, you know, I'd say in, in lay terms, it's quite simple to understand as that sense that people feel, that we all somehow feel that finance has been becoming ever more important and kind of dominant in the way we live our lives in, in the societies we live in and in the way you know, people make ends meet. And we're now 12, 13 years after the great financial crash of 2008, which has really left its mark on society. And in a simplistic reading, you often hear this discussed as having been caused by some people or some countries taking on too much debt. Whereas actually, if you take a financialization frame, we can understand that it was actually caused by a different combination of things, including the fact that many people had to use debt to meet basic needs like housing, 
um, but also that more and more of the profits that are made in the economy are being made through the financial sector and through financial transactions. And, and that this is actually a much less stable and more sort of crisis prone way to accumulate profits than by say, you know, producing, hiring people to produce widgets. So finance has, this, has become this more and more important way uh, to squeeze value out of things. And that's in a sense what our cover tries to capture. Yes, that's right. And uh, I think um, what's also important to note is that because finance has become so much more important in our societies today, it also has caught the attention of like this wide group of scholars, not just economists, but uh, scholars from a whole range of disciplines. Like I'm a political scientist, but we've had colleagues who are anthropologists, historians, like, et cetera, contribute to the book. So um, the book cover, what we see here is actually a picture from an old mid 19th century pamphlet that was produced by a, uh, uh, an artist from the Netherlands. And what's on the picture is actually a press um, my, my Dutch mind immediately goes to a cheese press. That's what it reminds me of, but it could be any type of- Mine goes right? to a wine press, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, wine press, cheese press, we'll have a nice reception uh, <laughs> going on right here. Um, anyway, but so what, what's being pressed down is actually a picture of, uh, we see some houses, we see farms, we see nature, we see trees, and uh, there are men besides the press uh, pushing down um, these houses, landscapes, and what have you. And uh, at the bottom of this image, we actually see coins. We see money flowing out of the homes, the landscape, into this big bag that's almost filled to the brim. There are already two other bags next, standing next, next to it that have already been filled up. And uh, so this is actually from a, a satirical pamphlet criticizing uh, some some tax that the Dutch king in the mid 19th century uh, ended up levying, um, which for us was not you know super relevant. But what was relevant for us was that it really, uh, once we found it, was the only image that to us. And I should actually note, uh, by us I mean Phil, myself, but also Daniel Mertens, who is the uh, third co-editor of the handbook. So the three of us were really looking for images that could reflect financialization as a topic that is not just about Wall Street, right? It's not just about big banks, big financial firms, but it's really about how our societies these days have become much more, uh, you know, intertwined with the financial system, have become much more dependent on the financial system, and how, as Phil said, that sometimes leads, that sometimes that leads to value trickling out of our societies, our homes, the landscape, etc. And uh, this, to us, was is such a big contrast to how finance is normally depicted. Like we probably know these stereotypical images of, um, I don't know, a trader shouting at each other you know, in the trading floor or pictures of the Wall Street bull of, or photos of dollar bills and dollar signs and what have you. And to us, that was really not what financialization is about. It, it matters. Of course, it's, these financial institutions are big players in the story that we try to tell in the book. But for us, it really was about what does this do with, what do these financial institutions do with, how does their influence matter in these other realms of life? And to us, this, this, uh, this image visualized uh, our intention uh, with the book in, in a great way. I think, um, I mean, I think that it, it is the most astounding image now when, when you actually delve into to what's going on. I think both because it absolutely captures that 
that relationship between something that we, is so conventionally thought of as this sort of sealed urban world going on in a trading floor in a space in New York and the fact that it's it actually has these it's it's this enormous power and is having this power to shape our relationship to nature to our relationship to land to people to humans um so an image that captures that but also that it's a commentary on it such a powerful commentary and that really for me Phil in 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 pinpointing that distinction of why financialization as opposed to say finance that ultimately this is about a process of squeezing out value and that this image itself almost captures that in that you see the coins you said flowing out Natasha but of course being squeezed out of the land and the houses and the things and down into a bag um, and that this should be from the 17th century you know and have such import for for right now and so I guess that leads me on to asking you and pushing you a little bit more is that um, the term as I understand it emerged in, around the 1990s mid 1990s um, and of course we're now as you said, Phil, there's been a financial crash of, of, of or, or crisis of 2008, and we still feel the rip, ripples, the wake of that hugely. We've now been through a, a year and a half of a global pandemic. Um, the climate crisis becomes ever more present in our lives. Um, but we are now in beyond the noughties into this kind of millennial moment. So aside from everything 90s being very, very retro chic, <laughs> much to our dismay for those of us who feel like the 90s was yesterday. Well, you've given away our ages here. Yeah, <laughs> I've certainly given away mine. I'm not sure about <laughs> yours. Um, why now? I mean, obviously this is a project that's been long in the works, but you know, so, something that is, is, is so historically grounded what does it say about these kind of early decades of this kind of 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 millennial capitalism millennial global capitalism that it's so important that we talk about financialization now well i think what what brought us together for this book and maybe natasha wants to say a little bit more about that in a second was that we all coming you know, studying very different topics in our phd research when, when we all met you know more than 10 years ago, uh, but not in the 90s, it was, uh, you know, the finance seemed to sort of matter in all sorts of spaces where you wouldn't necessarily expect it to matter. Like, you know, I studied international development as as sort of broad topic and, and finance really was this important force shaping uh, what I was looking at. And uh, so, you know, the term has become really widely used far beyond uh, economics and political science with financialization becoming a sort of go-to term in geography, anthropology, sociology, even cultural studies. And as I mentioned, development studies all sort of dealing with this way in which finance is, you know, to return to the image on the book, exerting pressure on everything we do. Mm -hmm. And I think what would probably kickstarted the project itself quite specifically was that a uh, kind of runaway success, if you like, in an academic sense of uh, Natasha's uh, paper in Socioeconomic Review entitled Making Sense of Financialization, I think in 2014, um, which, you know, there was a huge response to, and it just showed that there was a huge interest in using this concept and trying to make sense of this concept of financialization in all the disciplines I just mentioned. And at some point, you know, the three of us, we sort of got together and realized, well, discussed, well, why is there actually no book that brings all this together? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. And I, I don't know if it really was my article, Phil, because there was already, you know, scholarship going on on financialization, you know, before that, really from, uh, let's say, 2000 onwards. But I think, uh, as Phil just mentioned, like the great financial crisis really um, uh, popularized the term among academics in a way that people just became much more aware that, uh, as we just said, finance is not just about Wall Street. It also matters in these other domains of uh, of our lives. And that made this, this term, this concept, a very attractive one for a range of academics in a, in a wide variety of disciplines like anthropology, sociology, history, poli-sci, like myself, to kind of use it as an analytical lens uh, to for better understand the topics that we were already working on. So Phil mentioned development studies for himself. For me, that would be the welfare state, right? I, I was already doing research on the welfare state and then realized that without using, uh, uh, or without looking at finance or without using this idea of financialization, I could not understand how, for instance, certain developments in, in pension systems, the focus of my dissertation, had, uh, had taken place. And, I, uh, and so that's, uh, I think, uh, um, the realization that many scholars had around that time, right after the great financial crisis, which meant that this became a very popular uh, term to adopt in, every day, in their research. And we really saw it just, you know, exploding almost in the sense there's been so much work, incredible work uh, produced um, in the social sciences around financialization since, let's say, 20. Uh, 10 and um, that uh, we, as Phil said, were so surprised. Like, why has nobody tried to capture this fantastic diversity in the scholarship and all these different viewpoints and approaches that each reveal, you know, a particular piece of the puzzle? So, what is finance doing to today's societies, and how did we get here, and how can we move away from this uh, this moment in time? Why is this book not yet being written? And so, when the publisher mm -hmm. approached us. We thought this is an amazing opportunity to not just collaborate amongst ourselves, but also work with this uh, this large group of, of scholars that uh, that we all admire very much. Let's do it. Let's uh, let's edit this book. And so it became a very big book. Yes, a very big book. And, and but I would say, I mean, that that both that um, breadth and that richness is, is really a, a testament to the editing work that must have gone in, drawings, this, this you know, the, the, the creation of this project, but also exactly managing to kind of show, show how all of these different domains of life um, from, you know, uh, microcredit, debt, uh, mathematization, financial literacy, financial inclusion, education, environment are all increasingly implicated by and shaped by the kind of tentacles of, of finance. Um, and I think that that really um, is speaks to its, its richness and its power in managing to do that, that it's only in trying to answer that puzzle, as you put it, Natasha, it's only in sort of drawing this 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 very wide lens which you've done and I'm just wondering what um what it was like to to work on a, on a project like this that has in in some senses does encompass the world and to find the common ground and whether that common ground is in the kind of technical processes of finance that these different domains are all that there's some kind of commonality there or continuity or whether it's in the perspective of the writer, that it's in some sense that there is 
uh, already a kind of, um, that the intellectual project, the intellectual agenda has underlying it, uh, if not a, a, a political perspective, but a particular analytical lens that we've talked about squeezing value out, we've talked about the pressure financialization is exerting, that is it is what connects all of these, the way in which processes of finance are in some senses imperiling these different domains, or is that going too far? Well, I, I think maybe it's just good to, to mention when, when we started this project, we wanted to basically avoid two things. The first was that we didn't want to get stuck in definitional debates because there's so many different viewpoints on what financialization is, what it should be, that uh, we figured there's no way out of this, at least not in a single handbook. So let's first accept the fact that financialization might mean slightly different things to the authors who are writing chapters for us. And uh, maybe this was a bit of the easy way out, but for us, it, it was actually you know, the most workable an uh, intellectually rewarding starting point also, because that means that you know everyone can showcase their own approach to financialization. And the second uh, um, entry point that we had was that we also wanted to avoid um, basically what we call financialization of studies. That at this point, we have so many different studies about where we find financialization, where it's located, situated, that we thought there's, again, there's no way we can do justice to all that diversity in a single handbook. So instead what we've done, and I hope we succeeded in that, is uh, highlighting the different approaches to studying financialization. So we're not trying to really um, be comprehensive in the sense that we wanna cover all the topics and all the sites and what have you, but we really want, again, wanna show how different scholars from different disciplines have approached this, uh, this question of financialization. Mm. Yeah, I think we kind of discovered that there was a community of scholars out there that didn't quite fully recognize that they were a community yet, and we brought them together in this book. And what's nice to see from the initial reactions, the book came out less than a year ago, is also that it's it's finding the community of users we intended to. So, you know, the first book reviews have been coming in. They're not from any of the sort of narrow fields we'd necessarily expect uh, people to be using the term financialization on. They show a recognition that it's really handy for people who are you know, coming across this term and sort of sitting on the peripheries of that more political economy uh, type research to be able to get their hands on this book and say, okay, that's what financialization is and that's what it means to me and that's how we can use this term in my field of research. Yeah, and what, I've, uh, what I also love is that we've received such a great response from students because financialization is such a complicated topic to grasp, especially when you're starting um, your own uh, research and learning about uh, financialization. I think students were really looking for kind of a, a handbook that would not only clear the layout, what are the different understandings of financialization, but also uh, provides these chapters on different themes and topics that are not the standalone chapters, but can also be read in relation to one another. And so I'm very happy that uh, we now have this handbook so that we can uh, hopefully inspire a new generation uh, of, of researchers on this uh, topic. Do you know, Natasha, I think it's, I didn't think about that until now, but I think that is such, an, such a key point. And it's something that over the last few months, we've all been thinking about a lot. It's so important and such an endorsement that it's being 
uh, it's having that, that community is also a young community of students who are being inspired by, because this is a generation. And, and again, this really comes back to, I think the common ground that is implicit, at times explicit, but is really has this subterranean life through the book, which is that this is a generation, the generation, current generation of students who have to, I, I hope this won't be edited out, have been screwed in so many ways, you know, they will be leaving university with more debt than any students have ever had before. They have been screwed on student fees, not just in the UK, but in other places where the you know, cost of studying has become, uh, has made it an, a newer kind of elitism for any of those who can afford or those who will be saddled with immense debt. They have been screwed on the environment by us, you know, an older generation and having to, being told now you must all be Greta Thunbergs and solve this enormous climate problem. And of course, uh, not to mention Brexit, if you live in the UK and all sorts of things that are foreclosing possibility for them and robbing them of um, the, the kind of security and the secure futures that, that other generations have. And in, a, in to a large degree, particularly the questions around debt and pensions and welfare that you, you can tell us a bit more about, I hope. Um, the processes of financialization have been the robbers or the squeezers in that to some, or post-finance has, you know, so for them to have this, uh, to, to really feel the book speaks to them and inspires them to go to say, hang on, the way the world is organized or the way the world of finance is organized is having these implications on our futures and our lives, I think really speaks to the import of the project. Yes, and just to say, I think that is really what it is. The word financialization, the term financialization offers people you know, a handle to deal with, to deal analytically with a whole range of experiences that really feel problematic. The ways in which, as you say, Dinah, our futures have been foreclosed and people find themselves trapped in debt or having to resort to debt in order to meet all sorts of needs or just, you know, their lives are exposed to the financial movements that happen somewhere else on the other side of the planet and that's just how it is and and you know it is really upon a young generation of scholars to you know use this term to then make more sense of what's going on so i think very much picking up that sense of, of why and how the book chimes with people it's also because of it the ways in which each author in draws out the, the lived experience of financialization, that this isn't something that's just going on in a kind of untouched global sort of arena somewhere sealed, but that it is something that is lived. Um, and, uh, and I'm wondering if, I, if Natasha, you could say a bit more about that in that given particularly your own field of expertise and, and research, which really deals with the way in which we are all living financialization. Yes, of course. So my research is about uh, pension financialization. I work on pensions and pension funds. And uh, I always uh, tell my students that uh, pensions are actually not boring, but even though they might have a bad reputation, but they're super exciting to study. And uh, I don't necessarily study pensions from like the benefit side in the sense of um, you know, uh, how much money retirees get uh, uh, as uh, in, in their retirement, but I'm really interested in how uh, pensions are invested. So I study the politics of pension investment because in the Netherlands, as well as in the United Kingdom and lots of other countries in the world, uh, we don't just uh, get a pension through uh, the government, but we often also save in, uh, in personal pension plans or occupational pension plans or through the workplace, through our employers. And these pension savings 
are often uh, collected by pension funds or other uh, pension institutions and then invested in uh, the financial marketplace. And so my research uh, focuses on how these practices of pension investment shape the way uh, uh, pension benefits and, and, and uh, our well-being, if you want, in retirement is, uh, is realized or not. And um, I think this sounds a bit abstract, but I think this uh, uh, becomes much more tangible when you realize that all these savings that are collected in pension funds by now constitute a massive concentration, massive pool of money at the global level. And that money goes somewhere, right? It needs to be invested. And uh, I always give my students the example of my own hometown. I live in Utrecht in the Netherlands. But when I step out into my city, and then look at all the buildings and spaces that are there, a local shopping mall that was you know, financed by a pension fund. Actually, my own university building was financed by a pension fund. Once you start becoming attentive to this, it's everywhere, right? Pension investment. And sometimes these investments are great. So I'm very happy that in our pension fund, I think it was for agriculture here in the Netherlands, finance this wonderful, beautiful new campus that we now have at Leiden University. But sometimes these investments are less great. You know, um, we here in the Netherlands have had a few very um, uh, painful closures of beloved shops, beloved department stores that uh, had to close down because they, they were owned by private equity companies that were, think, like our cover image, were squeezing out the value uh, out of these firms. Uh, to just maximize their profits until the point that these stores could just no longer continue to exist. So this was a very painful story. Um, and that a lot of Dutch people as consumers were very upset about because these beloved shops just disappeared from uh, our, our main streets. Um, but then, in, then back to the pension funds, it becomes a much more interesting story when you realize that who owns these, who invests in these private equity firms, those are the very funds that you and I and others put our savings in. And so for me, that, those interrelationships, you just call them tentacles, but those interrelationships between on the one hand, our savings flowing into these funds that are in turn invested into um, uh, objects, firms, what have you, that may or may not actually be advantageous to us in other ways. What if we say we are actually employed by one of these department stores that on the one hand, we might have a situation where our savings go into a fund that invests in the very private equity companies that are then uh, to blame for our own job loss. Those types of tensions we see everywhere in when, when we use the lens of financialization, which for me makes it very interesting because you can really go about like almost as a detective, right? Trying to identify and solve all these different pieces of the puzzle until you have a more or less complete view of what really is going on. But of course, these are spaces that aren't easy necessarily to get access to as a researcher. And I'm wondering whether you faced particular barriers or um, who you faced particular barriers in, in doing that detective work, in, in kind of following the, the, the um, trajectories and the kind of circuits of, of these um, processes that can lead us to being complicit in our own dispossession to some extent. Well, yeah, the world of 
high finance, of course, is is quite hard to get access to, and you know, investment banks and trading floors and so on. But the the thing, I mean, the thing that word financialization and this field of financialization studies points to is just how financialized finance kind of is propping up and metastasizing everywhere. And I work on international development, right? It's a very different kind of access space. And one way I've seen financialization taking place, taking shape on the ground in my own research has been through uh, looking at the global expansion of microfinance, which is part development intervention, but also increasing through through its commercialization, a uh, financial industry. And in some countries like India, where I did my PhD field research in Andhra Pradesh uh, in 2010, this already led to financial crises, which look at, you know, at some levels quite similar to things like the US subprime crisis. In Andhra Pradesh in 2010, the microfinance sector collapsed basically under the weight of the debts that it had issued to incredibly precarious borrowers who were sort of enmeshed in these international financial flows and supposed to entrepreneurially generate these high interest payments that were the price for engaging in microfinance. And, and when that was no longer possible, the sector collapsed. And a similar crash appears to be imminent right now in Cambodia, where this has been another massive lending bubble over the last few years. But I think the most fascinating way that I've really come across financialization in international development has been through things like loans for water and sanitation, where the idea is that basically people who don't have adequate access to these public goods or public infrastructures now are sort of being asked to first connect themselves into international financial flows and take out a loan with which they can then pay for access to their local water flows. And you know, there are various financial models like this operating in many countries. And, and in some cases, you know, the water can be remotely stopped if people miss out on their interest payments. So it's very much also a policing technology that's wrapped into finance there. And just as another example, I think the most striking way, the most striking thing that's ever stuck in my mind of all these ways of how financialization works in sort of shifting logics in the development space was. Um, in one of the neighborhoods that I visited on the outskirts of Hyderabad uh, with one of the NGOs I was working with, where um, there was kind of this open sewage canal that you had to cross in order to enter the neighborhood. And it was just basically, it was, it was human waste that went into there and that was, basically, it was the source of a lot of diseases that people in that neighborhood suffered. And the NGO workers were telling me that they were currently working with their funders to try and create a new micro, micro insurance product, a health insurance, which individuals could use to buy in order to deal with their health issues, um, to you know, sort of treat the sicknesses that this present open sewage canal was causing. But that was instead of the NGO pushing the local government to close up this sewage canal, sort of you know, addressing the root cause of the problem, which would perhaps have cost a couple of thousand dollars, but it would have got rid of the problem. And instead they were you know, trying to, in a very deeply financialized logic, uh, trying to create a new financial product which could palliate the problem. Mm -hmm. And this was not because the NGO workers were really ignorant about what would have been the better option, but because their own funding streams from large international philanthropic foundations you know, rested on them always being able to say we're coming up with an innovative financial solution to this problem rather than um, you know perhaps using local government to tackle the problem at the root so in this way finance has really deeply permeated the way a lot of actors think yes and I think what you just mentioned Phil that finance or financialization comes instead of something else is really a core point here and something that I recognize in my own research is I think it's 
good to also say that, you know, at least from my personal perspective, not all finance is bad, right? There are certainly uh, also good uses of finance. I'm thinking of like home ownership, which probably for most of us will not be uh, accessible unless we take out a mortgage. But it's really when uh, finance becomes uh, exploitative to uh, like Phil just described that or coming or replacing structures that we think might actually provide a better alternative that it really becomes uh, problematic. And I recognize that from my own research on uh, on pensions, because what we see is that this uh, increased reliance on financial returns and financial markets in pension provisions has come uh, has replaced the government uh, using general taxation to pay for pensions has come in place of employers you know covering uh, uh, or financing occupational pensions for their employees and i think that realization uh, should always be there in financialization research it's not just you know showing what uh, you know the downsides are the, even the, the exploitation involved in this a whole process of financialization, but also always thinking, so what is this instead of? And does it tell us something, not only about the root causes of financialization, but also perhaps uh, something about the way out of this current situation? What should we be pushing for politically? I, I, I think um, the great power of bringing it to kind of lived experiences and, and tracking it to these uh, empirical kind of uh, on the ground engagements with financialization, as you did, um, Phil, with that specific example from Hyderabad, and also Natasha, the example of, of the mall that's built with a pension fund and the department store that's closed with a private equity by a private equity fund, um, is that precisely as you said, it, it puts me in the mind of these books that um, I read as a kid, and my my son now reads the Choose Your Own Adventure one. You, you, you make one move and you go down this route and going down that route, what it does, of course, it, it opens up following that particular trajectory, opens up more pockets and possibilities for further financialization. Oh, well, this, having done this, this opens this new possibility of this next to, but of course there was always another adventure you could go on. And so these take us down trajectories that of opening new possibilities for value extraction rather than other routes that might have taken us down routes of value kind of co-creation and co-production and that as you said this is much as much an intellectual project that involves looking at the root courses or looking backwards as it is also at saying well where does this trajectory go as we look forward um, Yes, we, we wanted to end the book on a more optimistic note and about sort of the possibilities for definancialization and more, you know, grounding economic and social systems again in more social logics and perhaps, you know, revisiting the contentious politics of finance as well. Um, as, the, as it turned out, you know, we found it surprisingly hard to find sort of chapters that were really or contributors that were going to be really optimistic or propositional about this because... I think it is actually not just for you know people working on this topic for but for kind of everyone who thinks about the ways in which finance inflects with our lives we we find it increasingly hard to imagine an unfinancialized world you know how many chapters in those choose your own adventure books do you have to go back to you know get to a completely different adventure 
you know, a, a world in which finance is still there and does the good things that Natasha mentioned, but, you know, and, and sort of serves the many, not the few. So we, we struggled to find contributions or to generate contributions that were really optimistic about definancialization. Um, most of the chapters in the final part of our book uh, about, you know, just how unstable financialization is and about the political movements that are trying to overcome it um, are a bit pessimistic, at least in the short term. Um, and, and, you know, we just hope that a deeper understanding of how and why finance is so dominant is going to be helpful for, you know, allowing progressive actors to start, you know, actually work on that pushback for real change, which just has to happen and is perhaps isn't going to happen overnight just by flipping the next page. But I think like any good um, project, you have built into there the sequel, I mean, you know, which is the handbook part two. Um, and uh, the, the handbook of definancialization to be published in 20 there years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the return. Um, and I, I think, you know, and it's, it's something I tell my students a lot is that thinking critically can look pessimistic, but it is also ultimately utopian. It is ultimately about saying, you know, we have some major challenges out there and this is not good enough. And this is why it's not good enough. And of course, change is incremental and it happens in these tiny moments. And these projects do contribute to that, to, to changing the way we think. And that's where it, it starts. So, um, uh, and, it, and it brings me back actually to the, the place that you started. We started from that finance being a wonky term, which is just such a lovely description of something. And I don't know whether it was meant as a critique, whoever came up with it, but for me, it's, financialization, saying this is a wonky term is actually capturing the fact that, well, life is wonky. And certainly what we've seen over the last few years or, or this, this the last couple of decades is that the world is on the wonk. <laughs> and that whether we're talking about people living in the, these uh, informal urban spaces in Hyderabad or the higher up the kind of pecking order of value extraction, that, that when things work, or don't work, or if we to, to make them work is to look at them obliquely, given that everything is on the wonk. So the term needs to be wonky. You kind of need, whether it's actually trying to forge a life through this or actually to think about it intellectually, we almost need to turn to, to the slant to try to understand how things are, are tilted one way. Um, so I, I, I love the idea of financialization being a wonky term. And I think that this project captures um, actually how productive and fertile that is. Yeah, interestingly enough, the person who uh, who coined this idea of financialization being a wonky term, that was the journalist Rana Faruhar in her book, mentioned that financialization was a wonky term. And she writes a book for a, a broader audience, not for an academic audience. And I think that's really indicative also of uh, financialization becoming a little bit more mainstream because we have seen journalists increasingly picking up on uh, this idea of financialization. We also see uh, you know, civil society groups, politicians becoming more attuned to financialization and what it stands for. And so uh, perhaps you know, with this pandemic, there's a lot of talk about how we should seize this as a window of opportunity. Perhaps we're just at the cusp of you know, mainstreaming this, uh, the, the ideas that, that we present in our book. Uh, although I do concur with Phil that what we need is kind of these new imaginaries, right? It's very easy to just go back to the past and say, well, 
if only we had, you know, a big welfare state and uh, more progressive politics in place, and then everything would be better. But of course, what we had in the past was highly imperfect as well. So what we really need is um, our new ideas that will move us forward from the current uh, current moment, and that uh, those ideas will then be picked up not just by academics, but by a much broader group of people in our society who can actually, you know, make this happen in the, in the, the next few years. And so, yeah, perhaps then in, in two decades, we can have the, uh, the sequel, the handbook of definancialization. We'll see. Yeah, it's, it's, as Natasha was saying, this wonky term in the sense of, of in the American sense, wonky of nerdy, but also in the, the, the other sense of it being un, an unstable and sort of unshapely term really has been picked up by journalists and civil society actors. And that's a great thing. I mean, in this, this allegation that, you know, thinking critically or this sense that thinking critically is somehow something very pessimistic, I think is, is, is mostly it's a little bit right but it's mostly wrong in the sense that you know i think we need to be pessimists about the short run but optimists about the longer run and 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 the future in that sense because you know covid has been anything but a great equalizer and you know finance financialization has if anything amplified during this the pandemic has already made the richest a lot richer even while they've squeezed workers more and good, good neoliberals, particularly when they're in or close to government, they know never, ne never to let a crisis go to waste. So uh, we, you know, we're going to struggle to push back in the short run. But I think the difference to the 2008 great financial crisis is that now, you know, this when the coronavirus pandemic offers us an opportunity to rethink the direction we've traveled in, and, and you know, to try and turn the tables. Uh, the difference is that this time we know the battleground better. We know that just because people see how unfair the world is becoming doesn't mean they're automatically going to take to the barricades. But it does mean that people are sort of, I think the current generation, particularly of students that I see in my classes, is much more politicized and much sort of more, if you like, constructively angry um, about the way things are going. So there is really hope in that medium run sense for definancialization, even if we don't have the recipes yet for you know, pushing back this way finance, uh, to, you know, to quote another book on financialization, the way finance exploits us all, or the way finance squeezes us all and sort of forecloses opportunities. Uh, we might find new you know, chapters in, in that, that book, that story of our you know, collective adventure, which, which allow us to uh, rein finance in and, and make it something that actually is less uh, financializing and sort of sucking everything into itself and more something that we can control and use for the social good. There is hope. Well, I could keep you here for hours um, discussing this and, and but what an invigorating and, and really inspiring um, morning. And thank you so much for, for joining me to, to really delve into this project and, and draw out these threads. So thank you, Phil. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you very much, Dinah, for interviewing us and uh, giving us the chance to uh, talk about this project of passion. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in an episode? Get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.